Well, as you can see from the screens behind me on these bonus Sundays, if you remember, we kind of hit pause on whatever we've been doing, and we take one of the Psalms out of the Old Testament, and we look at it, and today we will be looking at Psalm 3. But before I get into that, I want to tell you a story. It's a true story, actually. Uh, It's a story about a follower of God, somebody who really loved God. Now, this guy actually happened to be a king. A very powerful king, actually, a military genius. So he expanded the borders of the kingdom very far. As a result, he became fabulously wealthy, palaces. Back in his time, that meant you had multiple wives, and he did, many servants. So very successful king. Follower of God, unfortunately, he screwed up in his own personal life to some degree. He was forgiven by God. He was restored with God. They reconnected. It was all fine, except there would be consequences. There would be like a ripple effect, uh, some reverberations decades down the road, actually in his own family. What happened is, I told you he had many wives. He had many kids from those many wives. His oldest son uh, rose up and raped one of his half-sisters. So from the king's perspective, that's one son raping one daughter. Right? Terrible, terrible, terrible thing. The king did not respond uh, fully and justly as he should. And so this poor girl who was raped, one of her full brothers, rose up and killed his half-brother. Okay, talk about a dysfunctional family, right? Like Jerry Springer has nothing on this, right? Uh, this is amazing. So, so, but true story. And so uh, now what the king has is one son who murdered another son. So the surviving son, the murderer, then flees the kingdom and he's in exile for some time. When he returned, uh, he was very estranged from the king, his father. The king didn't receive him at all. What that means is there was no confrontation, no conflict resolution, there was no humility, there was no healing. So they lived estranged. Well, then as a result of that, uh, what happened is that this son who was estranged from his father decided to lead a coup. So he started kind of looking for dissension in the citizens of the kingdom, and he would fan the flames on that, and he started to court the favor of the people so they would start to look to him. And then he started to gather an army. In fact, he gathered an army larger than his father's. And so he was able to lead a mutiny and chased his father out of the capital, usurped the throne for a little while. As his father was on the run, a a rumor, so remember he's a follower of God, but a rumor starts to spread like, wonder if God has rejected him. I wonder if God is against him. I wonder if God has cursed him. I wonder if God doesn't love him anymore. And so here this king is maybe rejected by God. So, So everything's falling apart. His kingdom's falling apart. His family is falling apart. His reputation is on the line. And even his relationship with God, maybe God doesn't love him anymore. It's all on the line for this king. What I've just told you is the story of King David and his son Absalom out of the Old Testament. And you had to hear that because that is actually the context that led to David writing the psalm that we will enjoy this morning. I'm going to 
let you hear it in just a moment, but I just want to warn you to not go passive on me, to be active in your listening, because I'm not going to read it again. This is our getting to hear this psalm that we're going to enjoy together. Listen to this, if you will. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Psalm, of course, as you watch that, um, maybe once something kind of struck you as odd. Did you notice like Selah just kept kind of flashing up there, kind of weird? Like, oh, what the heck was that? Remember, this appears to us as ancient poetry, but it was not. That's an ancient song. It was a song. There was, there was music, and there were musical notations. And so scholars tell us that that Selah, that was probably a musical notation, maybe a pause or a rest. That is in there. And as we go through the Psalms on these bonus Sundays, we'll see that time to time. So you'll need to remember that's what that is. It's a pause or rest. Well, this is the first two verses of that Psalm. Now, another thing that you might notice there is there's a heading up there that locates the Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, let me explain something about headings in your Bible. A lot of you have study Bibles. Right? And even if it, you don't have a study Bible, a lot of your Bibles will have headings that are in there. So like as you go through one of the Gospels, you'll see a story and it'll have in bold above it, it says, Jesus heals a paralytic, and then it'll tell that story. You've got to know something. Those headings were not in the original Scriptures. That is the addition of man to the Word of God, okay? So the Word of God didn't, and sometimes those headings are helpful and right, sometimes they're misleading. And so you just got to know that that's man, like centuries later they came back and stuck those in but not here. That heading you see right there, that is the Word of God. That was in the original. And that is God himself saying, hey, listen up, folks. You got to understand this psalm has a location. It has a context. It is David on the run from Absalom. And that's important to understand. This is David in the midst of the story that I told you. He is worshiping on the run. He is on the run in the wilderness, and he is crying out to God. Listen, so much of the scripture, we call it the word of God. It is God's communication to us. Yes, absolutely. But when you come to the Psalms, 90% of the Psalms are divinely inspired examples of us speaking to God. This is David crying out. And what we see in these Psalms, when people cry out, I love it. They are real. They are raw. They're authentic. They're honest. They don't hide it. They don't put on the Christian happy face and pretend it's all okay. No, David is real. This is hard. And the Psalms reveal that. They're honest. We call it the Psalms. Our hearts cry out. 
honestly. And so here's David's life, and it's falling apart. And I wonder if you can relate to that. And maybe your circumstance is not as bad as David's. But let me ask you this. Have you ever had marital difficulties? I'll rephrase. Are you married? <laughs> right? Ever have difficulties raising kids? Huh. Just wait. You will. <laughs> That's coming. That's, you know, it'll happen. Uh, they get difficult. What about troubles at work or money troubles or maybe a moral failure in your life? Maybe you messed up in some way. Maybe you feel like people are attacking you like they were attacking David. Maybe you feel like the, the rumors that were whispered about David, maybe you feel like God's against you. Maybe he's abandoned you and rejected you. Maybe you feel that. It's real. It's honest. David's life is falling apart. Maybe you feel that as well. And so maybe we can learn from David because this is how David responds in the midst of it. Here's the next few verses of that. I won't read them because we've already had them read to us. But one of the things you'll notice in there, David in the midst of this tragedy, this very trying time, he has a calm confidence. There's a calm confidence in how he's not like rattled. How does he do that? Well, let me pull out a few things. You'll notice he says that God is a shield about me. Now, as we go through the Psalms, it'll be important for you to catch this. Like God being our shield, that is a very common imagery about God throughout the Psalms. So pause for a moment and think about that. Don't skim over. Think. What's it mean that God is our shield? Who needs a shield? When do you need a shield? Where do you need a shield? What does it imply that God is our shield? It means we're made for battle and we're going into the battle. And the only way God is a help to us is that he's a shield. You see that? See, look, what we usually assume is that God's blessing is represented by the absence of battle. Then how does it help us that God's a shield? Actually, the expectation is that the arrows are going to fly. The sword is going to strike. But it's okay because God is your shield. That is God's blessing. And so David is not disoriented by the presence of battle because he has the presence of his shield. In fact, notice look, it says a shield about me. I think if I'm a warrior in battle and I have a shield, but it's not here. It's on that wall over there. Does that shield help me? The only way a shield helps you in battle is if it's up close and personal in your life. And the only way your God will be a comfort and a help to you is if he's up close and personal in your life. A distant God cannot help you. A distant shield will not protect you. David calls him a shield. He also says that he is the lifter of my head. Now, this is in contrast to verse 2 when it was said, there's no salvation for him and God. God has rejected him. That whisper, that rumor that was going on, this is in contrast to that. It's the false assumption that if David is on the run from Absalom, that must mean that God has rejected him. We buy into that assumption at times that when there's difficulty in our life, that must mean God has forgotten us. Evidently not. Evidently not. I remember this saying, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. What does that mean? Uh, when I was a younger Christian, it's just starting to grow, I heard this story and it really impacted me. It's the story of a farmer who is an atheist, didn't believe in God, and even more than that, hated the things of God, hated religion, particularly Christianity, couldn't stand Christians. 
And so this dude quite intentionally would always work his farm on Sunday morning right in front of his Christian neighbors as they walked to church. And he would mock them and he would taunt them. And then it came to October, harvest time, and he brought in an enormous harvest. He had a great crop that year. So he took out an ad in the newspaper to mock his Christian neighbors. And he taunted them and then he ended by saying, God must not mean very much if a guy like me can prosper. One of his Christian neighbors took out a small ad in the next edition of the paper in which he said, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. You see, David's on the run, but it's only October. God's not settled his accounts yet. He will lift David's head. He will bring his, he will restore him. If not immediately on this earth, ultimately at least in the kingdom of heaven. He is the lifter of our heads. God is writing a story of David's life It is not the end of the story yet. It's in the middle of the story. God writes nail-biting thrillers. There are some dark, hard chapters in there, but the story's not over. And neither is yours. God will lift your head ultimately, if not immediately. He is the lifter of our heads. And then what David says is he said, I cried aloud to the Lord. He is crying out loud, right? These are the Psalms. Our hearts cry out. It is raw. It is real. It's on display. It reminds me of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. God the Father didn't keep him from the battle. A shield around him, but Jesus went right in the battle. So remember, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is right before he's going to be betrayed, arrested, beaten, and crucified. And he is so distraught, Jesus is sweating blood. And what's he do? He cries aloud to God the Father. Remember, Jesus was fully human, just like you and me. Fully divine, but he was also fully human, just like us. And I wonder if, in that moment, Jesus heard the same silence that we sometimes do. But if he remembered, just like David, that God is a shield about him. He remembered the truth. He cries. He knows he was heard by the Father. He knows the Father is a shield. And so notice then that God still allowed Jesus to go to the cross. Look, folks, sometimes our prayers don't change the activity of God, but every time our prayers should change us. So we go into prayer thinking we're going to change God. What if we go into prayer thinking God's about to change us? And that's what happened for Jesus. That's what happened for David that their hearts were aligned to the Father's heart in that moment. Prayer changes us when we cry aloud to the Lord. That happened for David. So much so, do you notice what happened here? He slept. He slept like a baby that night. How does that happen? Some of you struggle with insomnia, right? Like what happens with insomnia is what happens, you go to sleep, and it's at night when you lay down that everything gets quiet and your mind just starts to go, right? And you're thinking about what happened. You're thinking about what could happen, what might happen, what's going to happen. And your mind's just beating you up and you can't sleep. So you get up and you do something to distract yourself. Now you're wired, right? And so you go, oh, man, I'm getting tired. I got to go to sleep. So you go lay down and now it's quiet and your mind starts to go. It's hard. David slept like a baby. Partly because, uh, I, I, I think in that moment, he, he was in the wilderness. I mean, you realize that, like, David slept. When he slept, he wasn't in the palace. He wasn't in his bed. He was on the wilderness floor, camped out on the run, but he was not exposed. Why? He was covered by a shield. 
He knew in that moment that God his Father was covering him, and so he could sleep just like a baby. And then in the morning, he woke up. And what happened in the morning? It's interesting. It doesn't say it in here, but it's implied by the very presence of this psalm in our scriptures. The reason we have this is because David wrote it on the run. David wakes up in the morning. <laughs> Catch this. This is wild. He's on the run from his son who's trying to, king him to, to kill him, trying to take his throne, trying, trying to take his kingdom. And David's in the wilderness and wakes up and he says, hey, before we move camp, hold on, I got to go write a worship song. Who does that? But he says, I got to go write a hymn. David is worshiping on the run. And I'll tell you what, sometimes to worship on the run is the best worship. Because in that moment, you're not thanking God for what he's given you. You're thanking God for who he is. You know that he is your shield, that he is your comforter, that you can trust him, that you love him. And so we worship on the run. That's what David's doing. I remember uh, an example of that from our early years of marriage. We were living down near Granville, Ohio. Went to a church down there, great church. And the pastor stood up one Sunday to tell us about a tragedy that had taken place in the, one of our families in the congregation. Earlier that week, their house burnt to the ground. Now, not like a little bit, but like embers, like nothing left. The family got out and their, their dog. Uh, I assume the cat didn't. It was a good story. So, um, no, so, but I don't think they had a cat. So the family got out, the dog got out, and uh, how to lose your crowd with one offhanded comment. All right, so, um, so here's what happened, though. The pastor, of course, gets a call. He drives up on the scene. There's all the first responders and the lights and the trucks and all that going on. What he finds, though, is the family is in the front yard with their arms around each other, and they're singing in worship to God while they watch their house burn. How do you do that? That's worship on the run. It is a family that knows that God is their shield, and they can trust in him. That's what David does. David is trusting in the Lord. In fact, you'll see that in the rest of the psalm right here where he's not trusting in armies, but he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you strike God's salvation belongs to the Lord. It's all about what God does. He's trusting in God. And so to get at that, I want to ask for uh, you to consider two questions. The first one is this. Whose power? Whose power? Now, Notice that David said he's not afraid of thousands of troops coming at him. He's also not trusting in thousands of troops who have his back. He's not going to trust in the sword or the horse. That's not it. Instead, he's trusting in God. He says, God, you break the teeth of the wicked. Okay? The wicked are those who raise themselves up against God and against his people. And David, remember, this is poetic language. He's envisioning the wicked as ravenous beasts with their teeth bared about to bite him and gnaw at him. And so he asked God to break their teeth, meaning that God would make it so that they can't harm David. He's not saying, God, help me break their teeth. He's saying, God, you break their teeth. He's trusting in the power of God. There is, of course, a balance here. David goes on the run. He knows when to retreat. He, he then reassembles his army. He will eventually take back. The, he is active. He's up to stuff. He's working. 
But his trust is not in himself or what he can do. His trust is, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, we have a phrase in our culture, right? We say, I got this. We tell each other, you got this. I got this. You got this. Can I tell you something? No, you don't. You got nothing. God's got this. And that's our only hope. And David is trusting that God has this. And so what I want to ask you is, do you have that kind of faith? Like, do you believe that God is active, that God is powerful, that God is able, that he can do stuff? And if not, then why do you pray? Why even pray to a God who does nothing? That makes no sense. I want to have David's faith. I want to say, whose power? God's power. God's able. And then the second question is, whose kingdom? Whose kingdom are you fighting for? Whose throne are you defending? Whose glory are you seeking? Whose battles are you fighting? I I suspect some of you can't sleep at night, and the reason why is because you're all about your own little kingdom, and you're bunged up. I highly doubt those of you who struggle to sleep at night, it's that you are so bunged up about that one remote tribe in Africa that hasn't heard the gospel yet. It's not the kingdom of God, see? It's our own kingdoms, and we get sideways because of it. Now, David, by contrast, he's got nothing to lose. He has nothing to lose. Because if he loses his throne or his kingdom, who cares? Or let me put it this way. What if God gives David his throne and his kingdom back? Folks, don't you realize he already had that? And it led to this story. It led to this tragedy. David is fully aware of the fragility and the vanity of trusting in his own kingdom, of trusting in this world to be his savior. And he just wants the kingdom of God. You see, you can knock David off his throne. You can. Do you know what you can't do? Nobody but nobody will knock Jesus off his throne. His kingdom is not at risk. His glory is not at risk. His throne is not at risk. His victory is not at risk. He is solid. He's not threatened. He's okay. And I think David has that perspective that it is his kingdom that matters. And because his kingdom is not under threat, therefore, David knows he has a shield. He knows he has a lifter of his head. He knows he has a God. He knows he will be ultimately okay. And he's not, he's not threatened. Not in the least. This comes up sometimes in our congregation when uh, a couple breaks up. Married couple. Let's say that the wife leaves the husband. The husband will come to me just beside himself because he wants her back. Sometimes she screwed up. Sometimes he screwed up. More often than not, you know it's true. They both screwed up. But she left and he wants her back. The thing I will tell him is, you don't need her back. You need Jesus. What happens in that moment, we're tempted. We, we say, no, she's my life. Life doesn't make sense without her. If I don't get her, my life falls apart. In that case, he has an idol. And if he gets her back or he doesn't, he loses either way. And I got to help him get to a point where he lets go of her. He wants her back still, absolutely. But he lets go of her and he clings to Jesus. And he says, as long as I have Jesus, I'll be okay. And if he gets her back or not, he wins either way. Sometimes God brings him to that point so that he lets go of her and holds on to him. And so I pray with him. And I say, I hope you get her back. But I'm not praying as much for that. I'm hoping you get Jesus. 
And that's David right now. He's, he's letting go of his throne, his kingdom. He doesn't need that back. He hopes he gets it back, but he's clinging. He's saying God's kingdom, that is what matters. And if we can get to that point where we're saying it's a kingdom of God that matters, then I think we will be really well comforted in the midst of the battle by the shield about us. So I want you to answer those questions. By whose power are you fighting? And for whose kingdom are you fighting? Will you run into the battle for God? Will you run into the battle with God? Now, let's be honest, folks. It will be tough. We're not going to be fake here. Put on the nice little shallow, happy Christian face. No, we're going to be like the Psalms. Our hearts cry out. We're going to be raw. We're going to be real. It's tough. It stinks. It's hard. I get it. But can we cry out to God? And let him be our shield, let him be our comforter, so that in that moment, we can worship on the run. Now, to help you catch that, you know on these bonus Sundays, we love to look at a redemption story. Oh, they're precious. And and I want you to see the story of a couple in our midst who have set their kingdom aside and embraced the kingdom of God. And they only get through this if he is their shield. And I'll tell you what, they are worshiping on the run. I want you to enjoy this. I grew up in a Christian home. Um, as long as I can remember, we, my family's been part of church. It was really my parents' faith for a lot of years until, until I grew up and decided that this was actually worth living. I grew up in a Christian home as well and was always in the church and also became a Christian when I was five. The church that I grew up attending, I started working there as the junior high coordinator and met this couple, Todd and Candy um, Smith, who were volunteers in junior high. And she said, just a couple weeks after meeting me, um, I'd like you to meet my son, Josh, someday. Started dating yeah. September 90. October 99, and we got married in August of 2001. Um, I grew up wanting to be a wife and a mother. That was my thing. I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and raise babies. About six months into trying and nothing happening, um, I thought, this is not going to happen. Like, I really think God has a different story written for us. And it was like equal parts wanting to fully embrace that because the idea of God having a story that's different than most stories around you is really neat. But it also was like, wait a minute, (laughs) I just want what kind of seems to be the easy route and just to, you know, just to be able to have a baby. Mm -hmm. We did go see an infertility specialist Um, just to see what was going on, if maybe there was something that was an easy fix. And they couldn't find anything that was preventing us from conceiving. So we were given the diagnosis of medically unexplained infertile, which to us was another confirmation that God had written a different story. You know, he was continuing to direct us a different way. So adoption was something that we had always talked about. We both grew up thinking at some point in our lives this might happen. And so we started getting information from 
everywhere from public agencies and private agencies and international. Um, I had stuff coming in the mail kind of regularly and we were really praying that, you know, we knew God had a plan. We just wanted him to show us clearly what that was. And one day I thought, oh my word, duh, I was a social worker for kids in foster care. Like, why would we not look at that? Uh, we both imagined bringing home a little baby. And then one day I thought about the sibling groups that had to be separated. And I went to him and said, I just like, I know this is crazy, but will you think about and pray about starting our family with a sibling group because we could keep kids together. And he said, if you tell me that you think we can do it, then I'm gonna believe you and say we can do it. And I said, I think we can do it. Um, we were at a training and our, um, the, the social worker who was doing our home study was there at the training. And she said, hey, I just heard about a sibling group of three um, this morning, the oldest is like five or almost five, um, and it's two boys and a girl, and you could call their caseworker tomorrow and get more information. So those three kids turned out to be our oldest, um, our oldest kiddos. Four and a half, two and a half, and 15, 15 months. months. It was crazy, it was an amazing story at that point too. Like. Yeah, we thought that was a We big thought story. that was huge and awesome and like, wow, look what you've done, God. Um, <laughs> and then um, then our daughter uh, started asking things like, um, I'd really like to have a sister. Could we, can, can I have a little sister? So I came to him and I said, do you think that God would give her the desire for a sister so that we would get licensed to foster to adopt again? And you said, I'm pretty sure God doesn't work that way. That was exactly the way that God worked. And I think it was, again, it was like a, a couple weeks later that he came to me and said, you know, I, I think that might be what he's doing. So we started the process to get licensed again. And at some point during that time, started having the conversation of, what if we were open to a sibling group again? What if we were open to a sibling group of three again? Because we did that already. So even though it's really hard and we're not like awesome at it, we do know how to do it. We know the logistics of it. And then there's another group that could stay together potentially, you know, that wouldn't have to be separated. So we, couple months after we got licensed, mm -hmm. we heard about another sibling group of three, and the oldest had just turned five, and then the next one had just turned three, and then the youngest was 17 months. Mm -hmm. I thought the first time was really, really hard, but adding a second set of three was even harder. Um, similar situations that the kids came from, but the way that these kids responded to the abuse and neglect that they had suffered was much different than our older kids. So life at home was a lot rougher. Yeah. The trauma that they had experienced had affected them in much deeper ways, much different ways, I should say, 
than our oldest three. The second set of three came to us in April of 2014. And when we found out their birth mother was pregnant, we had lots of conversations around, do we say that we'll be open to taking placement of this child? Would it be better if this baby went someplace else and we just focused on the six that we have now? And we felt like the Lord wanted us to be open to bringing the baby in if the baby needed placement. Children's Services contacted us to see if he could come stay with us for a few days to give them some time to process. And we got an email from the caseworker a few days later saying that he was staying. So we have seven kids and I had a lump on my neck that at first we thought was just um, from like having a cold, you know, your lymph nodes swell a little bit. After a few months of testing, found out that I had thyroid cancer and was going to need to have a total thyroidectomy. And then um, right around there, we found out that their birth mother was pregnant with twins. Um, going, from, going from seven to nine children um, was, uh, <laughs> it was just nuts. Um, I always just say, nine is nuts. My surgery November 13th of 2015, radiation January 20th, 2016, and then the twins were born February 2nd, 2016. We have to believe that a God who would send his own son to die for us is going to equip us to be able to do the stuff that he wants us to do, mm -hmm. even if that means it's nine kids. So we had been looking for a church that was a little closer to home for our family, and I drove past Redemption pretty regularly. Every time we walked in the door, um, we came separately a few times, um, and every time we walked in the door, something happened that we felt like this place is different. Our kids are expected, and they're and they're um, they're loved on when they're there, and um, our kids take a little extra work sometimes, but um, the church has been happy to to find the people to help make that work every week and that's amazing because um, it gives the two of us an opportunity to go to worship together. What he's done with them um, is a story of redemption and what he is doing with us through this is a story of redemption. Whatever's happening in that little head and little heart um, God is working on and we get to be his agents in this world and in this in these kids' lives to help um, apply the gospel into it. We're the Smiths, and this is our redemption story. <laughs>